You're so funny, Jennifer. I think you're really funny, right? Okay, I hope this comes I out. To, yeah, I you? think I'm funny, but yeah. <laughs> Welcome, everyone, to the Stoic Salon podcast where we talk about life, love, work, play, the universe, and stoicism. Today, um, I'm going to be talking with Jennifer Baker. Jennifer Baker teaches stoic ethics at the College of Charleston, um, and she writes on how to apply stoicism to contemporary ethical issues in life, and interestingly, in economics. She is the author of over two dozen articles in philosophy. And she's also the co-editor of Economics and the Virtues for Oxford University Press. She's currently working on a book manuscript on economics and moral indifference. And I'm really keen on asking her, yeah, what relationship should we have with money? I mean, we'll talk about all sorts of things. I'm also curious about how she came to find stoicism and how and why stoicism informs the work that she does and uh yeah and then we'll get into some economics sounds like a very interesting chat i'm really looking forward to to it so let's get going so welcome everyone to the stoic salon podcast where we talk about life love work play the universe and stoicism and today i'm really excited to be talking with jennifer Baker. Um, Jennifer, welcome. How are you? Hello. I'm really looking forward to this. It's a treat. Yeah, me too. All right. So I've kind of just started this podcast and I, I was kind of initially thinking of giving it a tagline of flow to flourish. So that's not the tagline anymore. It's kind of a work in progress, but I am really interested in this idea of, you know, uh, living in accordance with nature and um, and how that leads us to flourish. Yeah. Um, that, of course, ties in with the women's conference that we're both going to be at and you'll be presenting, yeah. so the concept of flourishing. And then yeah. I kind of want to know, because I'm very curious, I've asked everyone so far, what's the path to flourishing? Like what was life before Stoicism? What was the point at which you met Stoicism? What happened? Did someone give you a book? Did someone say, read this? Did something happen? How was that? Was it instantly pivotal? Was it, you know, and then the after. So we'll start there, if you like. Yeah, well, I I actually do remember when I was exposed to Stoicism and um, I'm not sure my approach is atypical, but I was probably younger than most people are because I was just a college student and I had tried, um, you know, I was interested in philosophy in high school, of course. And so I had read all the typical things that people are usually inspired by in high school, but nothing really stuck. And I ended up becoming a philosopher probably because I had, you know, questions and doubts about everything that, you know, was available and presented. So I was studying in Ireland, I was overseas, and I was just doing that thing that good students do. I hope they still do this today, but where you just kind of hang out in a library and grab the interesting books off the shelf and look. And the, and the best book 
I had ever run across was Martha Nussbaum's Love's Knowledge. I just couldn't put it down. I mean, I think I made it to, you know, lights out at the library. So it was was so much better than any of the other books. I typically enjoyed um, doing that. What do they call it? The library fairy, letting the library fairy pick the books for me. And um, after I read the thing, I flip it over and she's at my home institution at Brown University. But she is very um, pro-Aristotelian in that book mm. and was at the time. And so when I was finally able to take her courses, I think I got to take a few, um, she was really a proponent of the Aristotelian view and in contrast to the Stoic view that we knew nothing about. I mean, you know, I, I remembered Seneca from descriptions of Shakespeare, but you know, I mean, yeah, my, yeah. I think I knew nothing about Seneca, even though I'd written his name in test answers, you know, for years. And um, so she was, she would, advocate for the Aristotelian view. And I think I was sold, but there was always an element of explanation that was kind of, um, you know, poetic, you know, or, or kind of, you know, life is tragic. And so we appreciate that. Like not everything was tied together and that was supposed to be a good thing. And then when I got to graduate school, I had Julia Annis as my professor and she doesn't push any, uh, she wasn't uh, promoting um stoicism or aristotelianism but she was so good at explaining stoicism that it ended up just being the view that was better knit together mm. even though it was very uncool back then to be a stoic i mean i think in some ways it's still a little uncool to abuse <laughs> but i couldn't resist it because it made it there were better explanations and if i'm not rambling um too much one example i remember newsbaum using was um that there was a student that got sent to do like some sociology, anthropology type work um, up in the tundra. And she got there and she found out that everyone was already converted to some type of Christianity, it ruined her project. So she just spent um, a season there and discovered there was a lot of stoicism in the practice of these people that she was, you know, visiting. Um, and uh, one bit of the stoicism was that when children if children would expire, you didn't have the ability to bury them when it was so cold. So they would kind of, you know, remain somewhat exposed or, you know, from a perspective exposed. And the way Newsbaum presented it, as I remember, was that that would be the stoic option. Like a stoic would choose that kind of harshness as admirable or even good, or I don't know, it really seemed repellent, of course. And then I must have brought that example up again in one of Julia Annis's courses. And she had the best like kind of British philosopher kind of response, which was just, what else would you have them do? <laughs> so the way, the way Newsbaum had it presented was like, do you choose a harsh life or do you choose a softer, gentler life full of music and uh, poetry and, and, you know, nuance. Um, but that was not the right way to think of the choices I ended up mm. Uh, mm -hmm. believing. And then of course, Newsbombs kind of come around to stoicism. So that's been really nice to watch from afar. Has she complete, like she's still, what's her, where would you position her? We use her a lot in my classes on emotion and she's, mm. I mean, I really admire how she does it. I think she's, I think she thinks it's best to work free from ethical theory, which, mm. you know, if I were her, I would, I would maybe do that too. Mm. But, um, you know, she borrows so heavily from the Stoics that mm. um, with my students, we're constantly 
maybe we don't have to remind ourselves, but you know, there's the, there's the Nusbamian account, then the Stoic account, and there's a lot of overlap, um, mm. which, you know, we usually think is great. Mm. I'm really fascinated that you were won over by the Stoics when you had like Aristotle and Nussbaum, like just, well, because yeah, that's, cool. I, I, like I studied philosophy at uni, Sydney uni. Um, and so I remember back in the day uh, you did, so with philosophy, you did Plato, uh, the pre-Socratics, Plato, Aristotle, and then you skipped all the rest and you jumped ahead to, I don't know, yes. Hume, Locke and um, the other dude. And, uh, yeah, and so I didn't encounter Stoicism on campus but down the road right. at the, the Greek tavern chatting with a guy who was from Cyprus, so Zeno was like king, you know, and I didn't, Yeah, the Stoics didn't win me over until very, very recently. So what was yeah. it? What can you pitch both imagine you're like branding and like selling it what was it that sold you what you because you said it was the more coherent or concise coherent yeah just it's almost as if the stoics finished the account so I mean I'd have to say it was Julia Annis's teaching because um if I were just using the passages you know I mean it's amazing to me how many people teach even virtue ethics and if you get them outside of class, they're like, yeah, I really have no idea what's going on there. I mean, you know, we get presented things in these wooden ways and, you know, it, it's, uh, the, um, I'm not a fan of, you know, Aristotle on friendship, memorize, you know, I mean, so um, it's not that I had had um, stoicism presented in that wooden way. It was presented in a very um, dynamic way by Annis, you know, so she she's capable of seeing, you know, I think she's made the case that these eudaimonist accounts all share theoretical structure in common. And then when you approach it that way, where Aristotle puzzles over things, which, you know, I was reading carefully back then too, you know, probably helped that I was working on the Greek, but, you know, when you read him carefully, you don't miss the times where he kind of throws his hands up. And then the Stoics just answered the questions. So it was, I mean, it was like, I had no choice because it's like, okay, here's a great approach. Um, to ethics explains a ton. Would you rather stick with Aristotle who leaves these four things unsettled and is, you know, ambiguous in various ways? You know, what do you need for happiness? Not quite clear. Um, or would you like the Stoics who kind of, you know, finish the homework? Can you give me one example of where Aristotle's like ambivalent? Yeah. Like and then the when Stoics. It, yeah. So like when Aristotle worries about the role of external goods and our happiness, you know, he'll, he'll talk about how a life is blessed if it has um, external goods. And it's hard to figure out where that fits into eudaimonism. Like, oh, is this a new category? What does this mean? Um, he worries about, you know, if we can be harmed after we uh, pass away by terrible things happening to our children, you know, strong intuitive pulls there. Um, he also is less clear than the Stoics about the kind of trade-offs we have to make. That's what I've been working on lately, like the role of indifference in the way mm. we practically reason in mm. Stoicism. So with Aristotle, you kind of get some, some hand-waving, you know, just like make the best choice, <laughs> you know, mm. just like virtue is very valuable, but you know, you always need to make the best choice. Like how, how valuable, how do these compare? And the Stokes just seem to provide so much um, guidance when it comes to 
those types of decisions. I'm, I'm a big fan of the idea that our most precious things, you know, the, the things that make us blessed are still important to think of differently than virtue. And I have a very dumb example, but I think it works. I just, I can't use anything, but this example, I've used it for so many years. There was a mom in Texas. So she's called the Texas cheerleading mom on Google or what have you, you get to the news stories who loved her daughter so much. I, you know, the things we say, like I would do anything for you, right? You're my whole life that she hired a hitman to kill her daughter's cheerleading oh. rival. <laughs> so, I mean, I feel like we do get confused in lesser ways than that. Um, and Aristotle's not much as much help as the Stoics who are so clear on why you would never trade off virtue for, for anything. And it, it is descriptive of us, of course, you know. So I, I appreciate that they, that they finished that thought. <laughs> and Aristotle, what would Aristotle have said to the cheerleading mom? I mean, of course he'd condemn it, but I think Aristotle sees some of our choices as more tragic. Um, right, Daniel yeah. Russell has done a good job of um, pointing this out mm. recently, although I think Dan might agree that some choices are just um, tragic. So, you know, it, it's not that Aristotle would approve of immoral mm. behavior, but he would see um, tensions acknowledge that we have to deal with tensions that the Stoics would suggest um, are not actually tensions. Yeah. <laughs> Which now that reminds me that of Nussbaum. Yeah. That, yeah. And so what do, do, do the Stoics have a concept of the tragic? Cause you know, that's another thing that took me a long time to get into the Stoics because I was really into the tragic being like literature yeah. philosophy grad. Um, no, I mean, um, I don't know. Like it is, I'm not good on their account of art either. Um, mm. And I have a student who's looking into that and I was, it's, it's kind of um, uh, the scholarship in classics that I'm just really behind on, but there is a stoic account of art that I bet is informative here. And, mm. you know, I mean, I think accounts of the tragic when they emerge from a, a theory kind of, you know, make space for uh, non-explanations. Does that sound fair? You know, just mm -hmm. like, and some choices are tragic, some circumstances are tragic, and that's the end of it. And of course, the Stoics will try and accommodate everything we experience in advance. So I guess in that sense, it whatever they would use to describe the terrible things that happened to us, um, it just wouldn't be, uh, there. it wouldn't be the same type of explanation you get in accounts where it's the tragic is really built in is what I would guess. But I mean, that's a good, you're making me want to read more. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, Ooh, what's going on here? I know it's good. Um, what do you mean by the Stoics in advance? You said in advanced that the account. Like one, one thing they want you to know, for example, is that your children are mortal. So um, I've always thought right. a good branding opportunity for a Stoic would be to make little high chairs for children with like mortal written on the back, you know, people would be outraged, but it's not bad Hi, to Jennifer. prepare. <laughs> Good luck. I used to tell my kid, I mean, I've tried it. I, it, it has not backfired. We'll put it that way, but um, it's, you know, it's, it's just not um, conventional to remind ourselves that, um, you know, we are mortal. Mm. And I do think that's one way I mean, I know it's not appealing to people, but it's it, it's one way the Stoics are very different than, you know, common sense. But it, I also 
find it helpful. So what I'm going to be talking about at the Stoic um, conference is caretaking. I'm, I'm just on a panel and um, my husband recently had two open heart surgeries and two transplants all in like, oh my goodness, you know, like three years. So he's, he's been cut open a lot. And um, I get asked questions about how the children and I are dealing with it. And one thing that's just true is that we never thought these things couldn't happen to us. And it wasn't like we discovered it while it was happening. There's something about being prepared that was helpful. Something about stoicism that, you know, I spread to them was helpful because we didn't even have a moment or a stage where it was like, why us? It just didn't, it never became an obstacle or there was never a time where we um, felt bad for ourselves like that. So it's an example, you know, I mean, no one wants to think terrible things happen, but there's a way you're distancing yourself from people who are experiencing the terrible things all around you and yeah. always have. And well, by trying to suggest it's, it's wrong to think you too, you know, mm. uh, could experience those. You've just blown my mind because <laughs> I've never really thought about tragedy like that. So tragedy is almost a resistance to paying attention to what's going on, right? Or a resistance to accepting and comprehending human nature. Like if you have yeah. that, yeah, then there's no tragedy. That's weird. Yeah, it's it's to be expected. Is that a, right? I mean, yeah, right. I like it. And you yeah. know what else? I think people are bad on that subject. So people are afraid of death, of course. The topic of uh, dying people. You know, people are phobic practically. And there was this wonderful book. I should remember the title, but it was by. I used to think clinicians who were with patients at end of life would be very wise and would have a lot of, I don't, you know, those kinds of um, uh, what people regret kind of messages. And there's this wonderful book by a clinician who uh, did have a career of being with people at the end of life. And he was adorably honest about how he had nothing. <laughs> and it was so amazing to me. It's like, you can spend a lot of time with the dying. And it's not as if philosophy just kind of accumulates, you know, I mean, it's not as if you know what to say, you know, physicians are still incredibly nervous. Um, mm. In this book, I think it was called On Death, but in this book, you know, he admitted he's not prepared for his own death. So it wasn't at all what mm. I, you know, had naively hoped. Um, but that makes me think stoicism is all the more valuable i mean it's mm. it's not just something you gain from experience mm. Mm. i'm like thinking apart from the fact that what would happen to like poetry and drama with you know and now i'm thinking what would the news report from a stoic perspective because then there wouldn't be all these you know clickbait titles because it'd be like Yes, nature again, everyone, or something. What would what would the news be like? Oh, I was just I was just writing on this this morning. I think it'd be a lot of calls for help. How nice is that? Oh, you know what okay. I mean? It'd be calls for help. Um, like one thing I've been looking at is uh, the kind of thought we apply to, you know, like justice. Um, actively apply like the things people actually say which a stoic account lets me care about. I love that. I, I get to care about what people, I do read the comments. You know what I mean? I love that yeah. my ethical approach that I use, like lets me care about what people actually say. 
but people actually say things about like our the harshness of our criminal justice system or the huge differences in in income and, and wealth like in my in my little community and I feel like they're very misleading the things people say you know they'll just assume poor people deserve it or that they work harder because they're wealthy you know just mm. false things and if we were stoic, I think we would just see what was needed without, you know, being distracted by these phony baloney, feel good or prop you up mm. kind of stories about why mm. things are the way they are. So um, mm. I feel like stoicism is really helpful with addicts, for example, or the people who have mental illness, you know, it's, mm. it's not, it's not so dramatic. Mm, <laughs> it's just yeah. a set of needs, maybe some ongoing needs, but even criminality. I mean, I, I think the Stoics approach is it, there's evidence that we don't use it because of the way we get so twisted up and shocked, I think, by mm. everything. Mm. So I don't think they would minimize bad things. I think they would normalize them, but mm. hopefully people would be more practical and, and just kind of you know, fix some of the things that are missing and um, that would help. Mm. Yeah, that's interesting. That is so interesting. I wasn't expecting this conversation to go down this road and I'm <laughs> very excited. Wow. Um, I don't know if we're going to come back to that, but I'm just sort of thinking your work in um, on economics really yeah. is surprising because... I think the stereotypical like sort of, you know, what you get from the Stoics is, you know, being frugal and, and virtuous and, and the whole concept of the indifferent suggests that one doesn't pursue indifference or even if you do, how do you pursue indifference, et cetera. Yeah. Um, so I'm curious, um, uh, yeah, can you just give me an overview of what is a Stoic economy what would it what would it be like well I mean I do think they see markets as natural so that's like my weirdest proposal but a, a lot of um uh, well a lot of the commentary on stoics on economies in the past um is done by Carlo Natali he's so good and Tad Brennan's been really helpful to me lately, just his work on um, oikiosis and indifference. And, you know, of course they had different systems than we did, but I am, I am trying to push the same kind of reaction we'd have to, uh, you know, bad things happening in people's lives and people needing help. It does seem as if there are nice results from markets. It's a way we organize ourselves. It's not something we set up, but there's also no reason to act like markets are, are um, you know, incapable of being regulated or meshed with other institutions. I mean, I kind of want us to, to take the, um, any blinders off that would have us look at any economy or any set of markets as anything other than means to provide needed resources for a society. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. once again, I kind of feel my work is negative. So there are all these non-stoic accounts that will suggest that economists are doing things wrong or we need a better account of agency just for economics or we need to be softer and gentler in our economics. And uh, from a stoic perspective, it's like, well, bring me any data, bring me any economic data you have. It's just like studying 
you know, animals. It, you know, it's just like the work a biologist does. Just bring me the information about how nature's working and then let us have the confidence to just um, assess how things are going by whether people have, you know, their needs met. You, you know, so like, are people safe, secure? Are they fed? You know, do they have a voice? The list could go on and on. It wouldn't need to be a list of non-moral goods. It could include moral goods. But what is important, I think, about the Stoic approach is that it would not be at all the suggestion that we need to increase virtue in society. Right. And I do see that blended. It, you, know, you would think the Stoics would be guilty of that. If anyone was, it'd be a virtue ethicist. But the Stoics do not look at communal good as a matter of virtue. They look at it as a matter of fairly distributed indifference. So yeah. I, I, I just love the idea of thinking of economics as the study of moral indifference. And, you know, I, I would hope it would solve some of the kind of academic intellectual problems we've had in philosophy of economics, where there are just other proposals as to what's going on. Jennifer, can we just quickly clarify the term indifference? I'm not sure who my audience yeah. for this podcast is going to be, but I'm hoping there might be people who are curious about stoicism and might not know about yeah. some of the concepts. So. And indifference are real there, you know, like a lot of ideas in stoicism, there's disagreement, you know, it was like a living school back then. So um, ancient stoics disagreed with each other over indifference. I kind of um, like Marcus Aurelius has an account I use a lot, but um, it's also confusing because there was a Christian account that emerged using the same word. I'm not sure I even have a handle on that, but it's different. It's different than the stoic account. But the Stoic account suggests that it's just intellectually, cognitively useful for us to think of virtue as being what operates on indifference. That's one definition. And indifference being anything but our virtue. So they can be the most precious things, our daughter, but your daughter is not the same as your virtue. So wanting to do well for your daughter or me wanting you know, my husband to live didn't mean I, I went out and killed someone for their organs. And the limitation was not my love for him. It, the limitation was, you know, the constraints of virtue. Mm. So they just think it's so important. We don't muddle things by thinking we live for our daughters or we live for our husband, because if we do, I mean, it sounds beautiful and poetic. We say it mm. plenty. Mm. We feel it maybe, mm. but if we actually live according to that guidance, we're like, uh, we're like Medea, you know, I mean, we will make horrific mistakes. mistakes. Yeah. <laughs> so it's a harsh reminder to not be tempted, you know, to value things more than our virtue. Mm. Yeah. But it's a hard sell because I know that sounds selfish. I mean, people think virtue is selfish somehow, mm. you know, so even the way I just put that, it's like, oh, so it's all for you, right? You know, so all you care about is your own agency and of course you know the content is not like that um mm. you know the content is doing things for other people mm. so i always feel like there's you know contemporary ethics i think makes stoicism seem more selfish than it would otherwise because mm. there are these assumptions about benefiting your own agency for mm. yourself but i guess there's, there's that idea of identifying with the role that you're here to perform let's say mm. so if you're a mother uh, a virtuous mother then really contributes to their their child's life you know in a in yeah. a good way I mean, yeah that, that yeah that and if you're if you're here to be a teacher then a virtuous teacher would be a teacher who really teaches well others i guess yeah. so it's part of I mean, yeah yeah 
I like it. As long as we can get free of like conventional ideas about these roles, which I think even mm-hmm. the ancients wiggled us free from, which is great. Um, you know, so as long as you can understand that we get like false messaging about what a good daughter is or what a good mom mm-hmm. is, as long as you can kind of construct the role for yourself, mm-hmm. I actually, I find it motivating. It seems mm-hmm. descriptive to me. I've been working a little bit on policing ethics and police definitely do not see themselves as traders on the market. Mm. Yeah. There's some descriptions of us where we're always trading up. We're always trying to profit. And they're, they're, they're refusing bribes. They're living up to this notion of duty. They have every day on these salaries that aren't great. And, Mm. you know, it's a really different uh, self-understanding, you know, even, even in our, in our our society, our market society, Mm. Um, so I think those, the notion of roles and the duties we have from roles, I, it sounds old fashioned, but I, I do, I do see people using them. I find it useful myself. Mm. There are things I won't do because yeah. I'm a teacher, you know, I mean, they're just yeah. things I won't, I, yeah. it, no one's watching, no one cares, but it's like, my role as a teacher is just, you know, mm. prominent. There's one thing, though, that happens when you step into the role of the business person or so you've got your own business or um, you're an entrepreneur or um, you're a CEO or you're, you know, on the board of a company. You might be a good father, but then you step into that role. There's kind of preconception stereotype, I don't know, that you get dirty somehow because you're dealing with economics, you're dealing with profit over you know, you've got to serve the stakeholders, all that sort of stuff. So how can then, how can you be stoic in the corporate world, let's say? Yeah. I mean, I think I'm probably just not an expert on that, you know, like okay. I've got some <laughs> friends in corporate roles, but I, I would be curious about what they see as what they see themselves as sacrificing and how they think of themselves. I'm not quite sure. You know, I just, I'm sure there's an answer. Mm. I mean, I would hope that um, stoicism would transform some of the aims that people think they have. I have Mm. looked before at just things people have said, like um, um, I think it was the head of a bank made, maybe it was a joke, but he's like, we're doing God's work while he was describing some really grubby, like, you know, bending the rules kind of behavior. I mean, that made me think there is no philosophy that is here, you know, like there is yeah. no account of what we're doing when we profit. So I, I'm, I might have a pretty negative take on the set of things we believe we're doing when we're in mm. business. Um, mm. You know, I don't like the dog eat dog idea. I, mm. A lot of my friends who are successful are kind of in competition with a few other people, if that seems familiar to so, you. Know, so yeah. the rest of us were out of the running, but like what motivates them is really doing better than people they can name. You know, that doesn't seem stoic to me. Um, I don't see people feeling the accomplishment that we think people will feel when they get to certain levels in society. I guess I have secondhand information on that. And that seems stoic to me. You know, if you, if you think you're doing it for the accolades, like, well, you know, it comes and goes before you get them. (laughs) Yeah, you can have 80 buildings, it won't feel good enough. I mean, you know, so, so I do worry, I worry about what people think. And I would hope that stoicism would really help. Mm. What would happen to the economy if we ditched profit for virtue? Well, I mean, the Stoics are a bit free market. So they like, you know, the, the profit, I think they would regard as natural. Carlo Natale is good on this. 
but they kind of have this, they, they anticipate the description Weber gave us when he talked about how, um, you know, religious Presbyterians would deal with profit. You could toss it off. You could toss your wealth off like a cloak, you know? So yeah. uh, Natalie's like the Stoics actually had this idea first. So you pursue these things, but they're indifference, which takes away, you know, Aristotle's so good at describing economic good as a bit addictive. Mm. Uh, you know, we get confused, you know, an apple's good. So isn't the money that buys an apple good. So should we collect a lot of money? Yeah. You know, I mean, you yeah. just don't even question yeah. what you're doing because money is so tricky, but for the Stoics, that would not be okay. So you'd have to be pretty aware of um, what resources are for, but I don't think that means it would keep people from finding products that are wanted and there's actually a kind of approval of that from the Stoics that I wouldn't think would be from a humanist or an Aristotelian, because if we like junky music or something, what are my kids like? You know, if there's some trend that every 18 year old is chasing, the Stoics don't care. And then, you know, an Aristotelian might be like, I don't approve of that product, <laughs> you know, yeah, but right. there's something natural about providing it for the Stoics mm -hmm. um, that is not it doesn't have to be moralized. You know, it's like, those are, um, it's like we can garden for people who want the products of the garden, even if we don't, you know, mm -hmm. so kind of let them make their plans, which I, I, I find that exciting. And I mean, I, I love that. I really like it in contrast to some of the mainstream approaches to ethics and economics. Yeah. yeah. What about the idea, like a, a number of the ancient Stoics sort of gave away their wealth. Um, yeah. I mean, I don't know if they gave it away, but they just didn't claim it. Um, yeah. And I know that Wittgenstein, I'm not suggesting that Wittgenstein was a stoic, but he also sort of didn't take his wealth. Off, sort of. Yeah. Um, but is there kind of a sense that as a stoic, if you happen to come across money, wealth, you should either just leave it if you choose or mm -hmm. that maybe if you, if, you're, if you happen to come across that money, you should actually do something productive, like, with it? Yeah. Is there a utilitarian I mean, I know, sense in stoicism or is it just virtue? Yes, there is. No, there is. And, um, you know, this is, um, I feel like kind of unsettled territory, but I've been looking at Cicero and, you know, he'll talk about social utility. Um, and that's one thing we could do with wealth. We accumulate, of course, we aren't going to have any weird attachments to our wealth. I mean, you're more free as a stoic because you're not going to fall into the trap of thinking, I think people do this with their cars. You know, once you get a nice car, you're not more free in a stoic sense. You're less. My test of this with students is always, you know, have they been in a terrible car? I use the word jalopy. They have no idea what I'm talking about, but you know, <laughs> usually do. most Americans have been in some terrible car. I know I thought that was the term, but usually they've been in a terrible car. And I ask um, if they have a nice car or not, if they have a nice car and they've had to go on a terrible car, they're incredibly self-conscious. Does that make sense? Yeah, they're looking around, who's gonna see me? But if you have a terrible car and then you get a ride in a really nice car, you don't, you don't feel self-conscious at all and yeah. you can go back to your terrible car. You know, so those sorts of reminders of what it really means to be free, I think are so important with wealth. But then my frustrating answer, I just had a, a critic really annoyed by this in stoicism is, you know, that, that it depends. And I don't know, I don't know how to make that more palatable to people who want answers, but mm. I love about stoicism that it depends. And 
my favorite example of it is, um, you know, if you're an ancient stoic, you might get told, don't use gold wine goblets, you big show off, you only need silver ones, like it's a waste, and you're showing off. And that's bad for you. Actually, it feels good, but it's bad for you. And that's great. Once you've been given the advice, but before you haven't been given the advice, it's just not even active yet in your practical rationality. So it's not like you would get blamed for something you aren't exposed to. And then of course you could process that advice and it's going to be complicated. You know, everyone's mm-hmm. situation is going to be different and you very well might have excuses for the gold, but I know that's, you know, people don't find that fun in ethics um, mm-hmm. at all. <laughs> What about if your child wants, well, goes to school? Okay, I'm taking it to the domestic budget now. Um, what about if your child, you know, is at school and everyone's got, I don't know what the new thing is lately. Yeah, Yeezy tennis sneakers. shoes. Right. Yeah. What, what are they? Yeezy. Oh, Yeezy. I think right. Yeah. I'm glad I didn't say Nike. That must be so 80s, right? <laughs> um, okay. So, yeah, what do you do? How do you manage a budget at home when children are in a situation where they may feel shamed? Um, you're not going to give them the lentil bowl for them to cross the schoolyard with, are you? Yeah, um, right. I, did, I, You know, when it comes to um, these topics, I always, I'm really skeptical myself about advice from people because I always want to know how it works out. You know, like mm-hmm. the people who give advice often, I think are the ones who need it the most, you know, or they're, have you noticed that? I've, I think I've read something on it. If you need advice, you will be more likely to, to say it you know, you'll give, you know, like, you'll, so I am worried that um, my motivations might be strange, but I have <laughs> tried that on my kids. And um, I do have some applications of stoicism there. Like, I think it's bad for kids to be spoiled. And that seems real to me. I mean, you know, spoiled meaning they can't enjoy the little things. They aren't mm. grateful. Mm. So my poor kids living with a, um, a woman academic, you know, they're thrilled to find milk in the fridge, <laughs> but I'm glad that they feel a little lucky when I've gotten two cartons of milk and they, you know, they've got a whole day to relax because it makes them grateful for little things. Um, and then when it comes to poor people in our community, I have been, uh, you know, firm with my children that if they get nice things, it will make other people feel bad about themselves. So i like to attach that, you know, like they're in a society and if they get the little quick, you know, boost from having the great thing or the, the video game, oh my goodness. I mean, it's so hard for kids who can't afford the video games when they're the yeah. one into the video. So um, I think they've been good about that. Um, not that we have a ton of resources and it'd be a real challenge, but I just thought that was, it was a message they ended up, it's stuck. You know what I mean? Anything mm-hmm. you get that makes you feel special, that's material is bound to, to pose a challenge for these, these kids who, you know, mm. uh, definitely deserve more. Mm. I have another question for you. Um, Cause you're spinning my mind now. Uh, so I love what you said before about indifference and the free market and that, you know, it's okay. You know, produce that product. That's fine. Someone might want it, whatever. I don't really, I'm fine. Uh, what happens then in marketing and advertising where the the communication there and the invitation is that this is essential. Yeah. And you you need this to be beautiful, happy, whatever it is. 
Um, yes. What would a stoic marketer or social media marketer, what would, yeah. how would they do advertising if they were a stoic? Oh my gosh, that is the best question. Um, I love that. I mean, I can imagine them, you know, the boring answer, like I can imagine it going both ways, but I can see a social marketer justifying what she did, even if she's very successful at getting people to think they need something to make their room beautiful. Because just how you put it, it's like, well, I mean, we have to do something, you know, we might as well, like, you know, if, if, if they can, if they're on the uptake for this idea of a beautiful room, this is the trend right now. And it, it doesn't, um, you know, mislead them about happiness, who, who cares? But then even if they do get misled about happiness, which I guess a lot of advertising does, mm. I know this makes me sound um, mean, but when people complain that society should make it easier, I just kind of get stoic about it. I mean, mm. a lot of like the cultural warriors and stuff, mm. like I see the complaints as, as really childish. Like I need society to be mm. different for me because it mm. makes it hard if society doesn't accommodate my mm. attempt to find, you know, it's like, well, it's always mm. going to be difficult and it's been much more difficult in the past. Mm. And I'm not sure the difficulty of figuring out your own guidance in life is a negative when it comes mm. to figuring out your own. So I know television advertising and, um, you know, screens are tempting. One thing I did with my kids is I really kept them away from screens. We didn't have any uh, television for years and years. And I thought, you know, that's fair. Like little kids do get sucked up and they don't really have, you know, the ability to say no to these messages um, Mm of the way they work. It was so funny to see what their like requests for Christmas would be when they had no TV. It'd be things like, a wedding dress, a rare <laughs> pearl. I mean, it wasn't toys. You know, they just weren't seeing the advertising, which was wonderful. I, I love mean, that. Oh. Now they're very online, of course. But I do kind of see it as just a challenge and like one we can, you know, be creative about. If you're getting, if you're, you know, looking at magazines too much and, you know, it's 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 really uh, uh, bringing you down and you're distracted from what you need to do. It's like so easy to correct it. Mm-hmm. Before we move on from the economics discussion, Adam Smith, right? Yeah. He, I didn't know, but he was influenced by Marcus Aurelius via the Scottish yeah. Enlightenment guys. Christian stoicism? Yeah. Any comments on that? i am got no I, idea. I, but I've tried to figure it out. Well, I'm in the same position you are. I have I mean- read the Hutchison translation, which is it's called the Glasgow Translation. Because I, I live in Scotland now. When I moved to Scotland um, almost that. three years ago, came across the Glasgow translation. I think it's maybe 17, well, Enlightenment years, when's that? Um, and so it was Hutchison and some other guys, so two Enlightenment, scholar, Enlightenment scholars, and Adam Smith was a student of the Hutchison guy. Yeah, I mean, he's, uh, he really yeah. light, was inspired by Stoicism. I mean, here's something that confuses me. Um, he doesn't think, seem to think it, applies to all people it's like you know for philosophical types uh, are kind of the high-minded um and then most people can't appreciate it but that always seems so strange to me you know I'm like Adam Smith why would stoicism not apply Mm -hmm. to all people so I always feel he has something more in mind um 
mm. about stoicism than I can figure out. But it's hard. I've been trying to figure out his stoicism. And it's so hard because I feel he's so subtle and sophisticated. So, you know, it's like trying to look underneath the layer, his complicated layers to figure out if there's some mm. unstated influence. You know, he mentions, I've looked at every place he mentions stoics, but is there an unstated influence? And then, um, this is a little harsh, but a lot of times the Adam Smith scholars, I mean, some of them are so amazing, but sometimes they don't, they're not interested in stoicism themselves, you know, mm. so that it's not like the secondary literature has been incredibly helpful to mm. me. It's almost like we need a stoic to go through Smith mm. and really definitively figure out the stoicism mm. in Smith. Wow. Who's going to do that? <laughs> I know I'm not up for it. <laughs> I think that would take a lifetime or two. <laughs> uh, you're currently working on a book called... I've got my notes here, um, which looks very interesting. Um, economics and moral indifference. So that's basically going to be your theory of the markets as. Yes. I was trying to remember what um, title I had down. It's really like my business ethics class. We kind of go through the way people have thought about um, morality in the market since ancient times, you know, so we, we, you know, do Aristotle, Mandeville and, um, get up to Marx and Hayek and game theory. And um, I, I like it. I mean, I hope people like it. Um, mm. And then of course, I think the stoic option is the best, but I'm trying to figure out. I love the way you say that. How of firm course. I should be. <laughs> of course. And you do Friedman and all those like Milton Friedman and that. Yeah. Right? I actually don't think I talk about him. I probably mentioned him, but um I don't, I don't think I look at him um, much. I mean, I use Hayek for the defense of the free market, which I, I always think Hayek fits pretty well with stoic defenses of markets um, because there's information we get just from being able to act among each other. And it's not information any one person had, you know, it's not top down information. So I always think that fits pretty well with the same description of discovery in Cicero, where, you know, we kind of discover what our rights are, that type of thing. So I'm hoping to make those connections, but they probably won't be in this, this little book. <laughs> so because my, my knowledge is not, I'm not, you know, an economist by any, uh, you know, uh, so the liberalism, liberalism, is that Milton Friedman? Yeah. What do I think? Of, I, I guess Does I think that of fit into like your a, business class and then do you provide stoicism as the antidote or, <laughs> He, he, he has a really famous article in business ethics, but it's almost, yeah. and I think we do usually teach it, but it's real easy for philosophy students to kind of tear apart. It was kind of for the public, oh, you know, okay. and right. it's just kind of the suggestion that, that you can pass the buck. And, um, you know, it's, it's like the idea that uh, shareholders are like owners. It's actually not representative, I think, of his best work. So that's a bit of an obstacle. I mean, it's... Yeah you know, mm. it's a defense of like corporate structures as they are. And he kind of admits there have to be exceptions. So it's not, it's not really meaty for a philosopher. Mm. So do you see your stoic, stoic business course becoming like widely taught? No. <laughs> Come on. I had faith in because I mean, I can't even get other ethicists to tolerate talk of virtue like I you know I really feel it's an uphill battle I mean some of the virtue ethicists writing today I mean their work is amazing I mean it just measures up to anything we've ever had on virtue but you know people don't like to learn new things our audience is probably 
you know, other philosophers who are already invested in an approach that, you know, is at odds with virtue. So I really feel we're kind of at the, the bottom of the hill in trying to popularize this approach. <laughs> and of course, I like the, I kind of like the eudaimonist approach. So maybe virtue is, is more commonly talked about, but then if you like the particular account of virtue that Aristotle, the Stoics and the Epicureans were promoting, you just have, you don't have many built-in fans in philosophical ethics. You have skeptics and you have people who don't want to learn it. It's annoying. You know, people want to think they know Aristotle, they never need to look again, that type of thing. So I, you know, what do you do to convince people to be patient with stoicism when they already have eight things that they laugh about with mm. stoicism and their own approach to develop. So that's, that's kind of my conundrum. I need a marketing team. Yeah. You, yeah. You, you need to get to work on that. You need, <laughs> need it is exciting that stoicism has become more generally popular because I didn't see that coming. And we used to laugh in graduate school. Oh, if only, if only, yeah. I mean, we used yeah. to think, you know, what if, what if athletes found out about this, they would really like it. And now, I mean, it just happened. I mean, it, it's amazing what we used to just literally imagine and laugh at ourselves for imagining there is, there is a lot of traction now. I mean, it does have popular appeal. I don't think that's yeah. reached, you know, philosophical ethics, you know, academic work, but it's something big. Mm. Yeah. And there's even at the conference um, on June the 5th, I, I mean, I'm, I can't, I've got a creative writing background. Um, so the creativity panel is going to be interesting. And I'm really interested mm -hmm. in what stoicism can say oh for gosh. the creatives. Oh my um, gosh. Yeah. So the conversation is Wendy. broadening. Um, are your children fans of you and stoicism? I think clearly, so. Oh yeah. I mean, they don't sit down and, um, you know, they won't let me read their papers or anything. My son's in a philosophy class. I haven't even seen a paragraph he's written. So, you know, they want to find things on their own, but I think we, it's definitely the, the worldview we discuss, mm -hmm. like they're, they're on the same page with me. I mean, I did, I, I do think it's true. And, you know, I, I've like dropped it at any chance I can. So, you know, they just had um, their grandfather just passed away. And like, mm -hmm. I mean, some of the kind of preparation for that loss, I really think is um, evident. Um, they were very calm with their dad in the hospital all this time. I mean, um, they weren't scared. You know, of course, all this, they're still growing. So this is that example of like, don't give advice when you're in the middle of life, like who knows, but I haven't regretted any stoic messaging. That's for sure. Mm -hmm. Do you have a comment on age and stoicism? I feel that, so I've met people who felt that even though they didn't know, they feel that they, they've always been stoic or at least uh -huh. inclined to stoicism. Um, yeah. Bill Irving calls himself a um, congenital stoic. Yes. Um, for me, it's kind of kicked in like I'm 50 and uh, only in the last you know four or five years I felt yeah, could do that. Yeah. Whereas before yeah. I was really just, you know, capital T tragedy, capital R romantic. Um, yeah. Do you think stoicism mm. is easier with age? And for those who feel that they've got a real intuitive sense of stoicism as kids, what's happening there? Is there an is age a factor? Wisdom, the wisdom gene kicks in at, you know, what, yeah. late, late middle life? What, 
Well, I mean, depressingly, I don't see older people getting any wiser in general, (laughs) but I do see some of our distractions slipping away, you know, so like using, losing your beauty and attractiveness, you know, all my girlfriends eventually go through this. Some of us have very different timelines, you know, but it is a wake up call. You know, the world feels different. Like you, you know, you, you, you just get different things. Um, for young people, I've noticed it with my, my son, you know, that all the men in my life laugh about how they thought they'd be great baseball stars. You know, there's a point where your dreams (laughs) fade, you know, your expectations fade. And I feel like any losses like that, especially when they, you know, don't shake you to your core, um, you know, going bald, you know, that kind of thing. I, I, it can help. Right. I mean, if, if you're going to keep going on and you thought your hair was so important and then you discover it's, it's not, and there you are, and you still have everything you, you could have ever wanted to do that you consider good, really. Mm -hmm. I mean, I feel like those are all important lessons. I just don't think people always, um, are more likely to turn to stoicism. So, you know, I, I don't know what lights the fire makes people think like a, a stoic, but those lessons could be helpful. And it's um, just one example in response to your description of these natural stoics. Oh, I absolutely believe um, I've run into so many. And we just had a civil rights um, protester arrested when he was 13, when it was, he was with his family, um, his family got blackballed. And I mean, it was very treacherous for him. He would win basketball games and get called terrible names. So he's, you know, he, he still seems like a young guy to me, but he's older and just spoke to my class. And the serenity prayer had been his strength. So stoic, I sent him some mm. stoicism and he's like, yeah. oh yeah. So I do find that people who have made it through really difficult times without rancor and bitterness and I don't know, just this kind of uh, amazing commitment to, uh, Kristen Monroe calls it common humanity. She finds mm. it in these really heroic types. But I, I just feel you can almost, she had something in her book that people who take in other children, to other people's children, that mm. that's a, that coincides with this heroic uh, behavior mm. and also this common humanity. It's things like that. Like, you know, when you see a person not attached to their wealth or generous or mm. unashamed, I always suspect a bit of natural stoicism. Mm. I love that. I love that idea. Um, I want to talk to you about, you You mentioned that you can laugh at yourself and that's really, laughter is really quite, you know, a stoic pers- yeah. approach to life maybe. And people how, don't know. Laughter and what sort of laughter? How do you do that? Do you have a laughing practice? Well, I do assume like we have different personalities that can be fit to um, stoicism, you know, as easily as, as it is any personality can be fit as easily as any other personality. So, you know, I certainly have some friends and colleagues that are grumpy, you know, I mean, so they're not big laughers and um, some of them are stoic, but um, I do think there's something philosophical about um, laughing. I, I, I wouldn't want to borrow from a, Buddhism illicitly or anything, but I do think it's important. And I, I, I'm trying to think if I've seen anyone write on this and I feel like I haven't, but, um, you know, it reveals an attitude. It, Mm. you know, if you, if the Stoics recommend joy, I, Mm. I, um, with my parenting, I'm a little bit 
crabby about this sounds like a paradox, but about being cheerful, you know, I, uh, some religious types do that. And I like it, you know, it's just like, you're around other people. Like, let's have a little, mm. a little energy here. You know, yeah. I, I think that's okay with stoicism, you know, just be one of your personas and, and one of your social behaviors, but I like it helps everyone mm. helps you mm. helps other people. Mm. So, um, yeah, I like, I like laughers. My husband's more sensitive to it. And he, uh, he can't stand someone who uh, doesn't laugh in a conversation, which I think is going a little far, but he's been very consistent about this. <laughs> there's, I think um, there's an ancient account. Well, first of all, Matt Sharp, who teaches down under in, is he in Melbourne? Um, he spoke at Athens Stoicon in 2019. Uh-huh. Was it 2018, 2019? Get my dates mixed up post COVID. Um, yeah. So he spoke on comedy um, and uh, I can't really remember which text it appears in, but there's an account of the view from above. I can't remember. Who, it's some ancient text. And um, whoever sort of has this viewpoint from above actually looks down and has the urge to just laugh at. Not in a ha-ha okay. mean no. way, but in a, no. oh, that's, yeah, get it. It's funny. Yeah, like that right. kind of sense of detachment, that laughter, like looking at yourself from a distance and then just seeing how, how small and your concerns are, then that, that, that relief, that laughter might, um, yeah. It's a bit of courage, I think. Like um, Camus, I, I, I I think I do much better finding the stoicism in Camus than Adam Smith, but he really seems inspired by the stoics. You know, sometimes he'll have a character voice stoicism and it, you know, literature is hard for me because it's like, I want to know if that's what Camus was agreeing with, or is this just a character that's, but his um, kind of defiant laugh always seemed very um, stoic Mm. to me because what Mm. are the alternatives? You know, it's, it's brave. Mm. You know, if your last moment is something ridiculous, which happens, you know, you have to be prepared. Um, I think it might be from the same book I was mentioning before on, on dying and, um, you know, people die in embarrassed positions. You know, it's embarrassing to be in a hospital. You've got the gown open in the back and stuff. And that book wasn't about stoicism, but I thought how a stoic would really just accept that kind of thing with no problem. It doesn't reduce your dignity for your, Mm. your gown to be opened at the end. You know, I mean, there's just a different focus. And I thought, well, how nice that stoicism is freeing, even at the end, in those sorts of circumstances, a Mm. stoic, it just, wouldn't care if they were caught in that kind of, you know, conventionally embarrassing situation at the end of their life mm. or ever, probably. Well, since you've taken us to that moment um, at the end of our life, is there something in stoicism that concerns itself with our reputation after life? I feel that there is. What, is are, it you, in Seneca? what are you thinking? I'm thinking a reputation after life. Yeah. So that, who says it? Is it Seneca who says that you can't know if a person's lived a good life until after they've died? So then you take the full account into oh, it. And then there's a Aristotle, sense of, maybe. Was it? Maybe. Mm. So do you feel that, is there a sense that what people say about you after you die, would the Stokes be concerned about that? I would have thought they wouldn't, but I am open. And, you know, they say a lot of things. Yeah. <laughs> but I yeah. would have thought that I would have thought they wouldn't need the approval of, um, you know, people generally that, uh, that 
that our reputations being precious is kind of a non-stoic thing. On the other hand, as you, it sounds like you were about to tell us and I'm not letting you, but um, you know, you'll have, you won't have, you won't generate your own bad reputation through stoicism, you know, so you're safe from like, you know, some of the really uh, terrible reputations we can develop because you just won't be um, contributing to it. So it's not like someone will find out the truth. And so it's, um, you know, it's like you can be secure that your true reputation is an honorable one and at the mm. same time you're not like um you know plato will describe straw puppets blowing in the wind you know you're not trying to you know get likes every moment and uh, adjusting yourself to a new audience mm. okay i i think that's those two things are complicated but i'm going to throw in a third thing that's complicated i think the stoics you know they do want us to fit into society just not in mm. conventional ways not in harmful ways but i do think um that gets ignored by contemporary ethicists. You know, I know that's not a huge number of people, but um, I don't know, like social media, I feel is some sort of meaningful feedback. Mm. Accommodate some of that feedback. Yeah. <laughs> Which I, I just, I know that's not popular to say, but. Yeah, that's really interesting. Social media, I'm thinking of Seneca now in his letters and he sort of said, that when he was writing to Lucilius, you know, I think Lucilius was trying to get his reputation happening so he could be remembered after death or something. And Seneca was like, forget it all, just focus on learning, being a good person. Yeah. You know what? Keep writing to me because I know that my letters will be read after I die. So I'll yes. mention your name I and see. you will be remembered. I see. <laughs> so what's yeah. going on? And there? for what you truly are, you what know, you like all are. the misinterpretations will disappear and, yeah. and people's weird motivations for how they how they think of you will disappear. Yeah. Um, I thought of the Stoics because, because my husband got organ transplants. I'm now really involved with groups of people who donate their organs, sometimes even to strangers. I mean, I'm just in awe of them. Talk about mm. dedication to common humanity. Mm. And um, believe it or not, they don't like to post what they've done on social media because mm. they get so much anger. Oh, yeah. They get anger. People are jealous or... I don't, I mean, I, I just keep thinking about this is what people are like, like mm. you can donate a kidney to a stranger and, you know, your friends on social media are going to try and put you down for it somehow, some way. And mm. it's like, okay, that's a very good reminder. So if you think you're going to be able to trust, you know, other people's opinions of you, um, all I have to do is think of how these people get treated. <laughs> it's exactly. like, okay, I've got, I have no chance. <laughs> yeah. I love that idea of like just thinking it, it could be worse off. Like it just seems like counterproductive, but actually it's really, it's an instant fix strategy, isn't it? Like it could yes, be worse. Yeah. yeah. Yes. And maybe that's Who, where some humor comes in. Yes, definitely. Who is your favorite um, stoic philosopher, dead or alive? I really, oh, alive, alive. Um, I mean, I love Julia Annis. I love her. I just love her. I Everything she writes, like it just like goes down, like, you know, um, cream. I just love everything she writes, everything. And I love Martha, Martha Nussbaum, who's stoic-like, you know. Um, for ancient philosophers, I really have been, I like Musonius Rufus, just because I've been trying to apply stoicism. So, you know, it's not like I'd recommend those chapters to anybody, but I've, they've been helpful to me. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, that's interesting. So what's been the most helpful in the Masonius? I mean, just like his advice on like how to raise your daughters, anything applied, like how to react uh -huh. when you're 
child is sick, um, the yeah. advice on marriage, you know, I just like seeing how he will use different social norms and then sort through them with his audience, whoever the, I mean, yeah. whoever the audience was. Um, I feel like that's a good example of how we need to practically reason. Mm-hmm. And then he's passed away, but I look, Larry, Becker's um, a new stoicism mm-hmm. is what I really use in research because he lays everything out. And I, I know it's not exactly the, the same as like Julie Annis's approach, but it's so helpful to me because he's, because he's counted up all the moves and the argument. So yeah. yeah, easy to refer to. I love the idea of, um, so I know that you, you, your work is academic, but do you provide kind of pop versions of what you do? Like how to do, how to do's? Um, for the rest of us? Not really. I mean, I, I write for psychology today's blog, but All right. I don't know. I mean, stoicism's a very hard sell. Like I really admire all of you who are making it more popular. Um, I mean, sometimes stoic suggestions just seem so off. Like uh, yeah. it was years ago, but I wrote about, um, it was a little girl who was worried she was heavy and her mom was reporting to the news about it. And maybe, I'm not even sure I remember the circumstance, but it was not a stoic way to handle the situation. You know, the mom was kind of like, it does matter that you're heavy and society needs to something, you know, it just seemed to me that like they were creating the idea that this really mattered for this child. But, you know, I don't feel like that kind of thing goes over so well. Like people don't even like, like when my kids didn't have TV, like people don't like that. You know, I mean, it's yeah. I don't yeah. know what people want, but I don't think your stoicism sounds difficult. So I guess it would be like someone healthy telling me that I should run 12 miles a day. You know, it's like, okay, all right, thanks. You know, I, so I'm never quite sure how to um, sell it, but I sure do have a lot of students who appreciate it when they read it, you know, the, the process of reading the ancient texts. And um, I get a lot of them saying they had a family member who they thought of as stoic and oh. that they always admired them and now they get it, but it's a, yeah. it's a hard sell. Mm. I mean, even to and myself, but yeah. Just to yourself. <laughs> well, you've, you've sold me. I'm just like, yeah, I want some of that. I want all of that. <laughs> um, on a daily level, I know that you're constantly teaching and writing about stoicism, but when you, it's you, you personal level, do you, what do you do? How do you do your practice? Do you have a practice? Do you do something every day? Do you sometimes? No, I actually, I feel like a pretty bad person to tell you the truth because I think I have um, a lot of natural virtue in Aristotle's sense. Like I don't really have, I don't have agendas. Like, you know, I don't get jealous. I'm real open with my friends, but I think, and I have plenty of friends, but I think that's kept me from um, being as virtuous as I could be. You know, I just Mm -hmm. have other things that prop me up. Mm-hmm. So stoicism's right. really helped me in difficult moments. Um, mm. And uh, I'm so grateful for it there, but I feel like, you know, I haven't done enough of the work that's for sure. And the work I would like to do is to kind of, you know, just sort through more of what it's right and wrong for me to mm. support and for me to do not in like retrospect, but, you know, in advance. So I always feel like, you know, it's, it's, it's always a list of, um, a list of uh, things I could do thanks to stoicism to get better. So do you have a list to share or is that? I mean, <laughs> that's how lazy I am. It's like, no, not really. But um, I'm trying to think of examples. 
I don't know. I mean, I, I know I just handle things too easily. Like um, mm-hmm. I recently uh, knew I was going to lose a potential uh, friend or friendly colleague because I, I thought the person did something really unethical. And it was like, do I say, do I do anything? Do I say, you know, so much easier to do nothing. And it's not like stoicism s- suggests one answer to any, any of these cases, but that was a case where I just chose to do the right thing, even though there were negative consequences for me, but I don't know, like, I'm not sure I'm strong enough or practiced enough to have done that if it didn't seem readily available to me, you know? Like so, you mean intuitively, know. like already yeah. learned. Yeah. I, I was already close to doing it. Yeah. yeah. So I could support it with like some thought, but it's like, yeah. I was probably pretty close already. Um, but then the stoic um, approach really isn't, it doesn't suggest that it has to always be hard to make the choice, does it? It could no, that, that makes me feel better. No. I mean, I just imagine I'm not as practically rational as I should be. Right. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, That's interesting because I, um, I ran this um, journaling workshop last uh, at Stoke on X last year, or just online. And uh, a lot of the sort of stoic academics, et cetera, because we were talking about writing as a, as a daily practice, you know, journaling is big and the pop side of things where I fit in Um, and a lot of the academics did not have a daily journaling practice did not have sort of a practice wrote you know you know prolifically books um, journal articles blog posts etc and that was quite interesting even like Chris Gill for example said you know Catherine yeah I don't but um, you know and had so much fat, great um, input for us all. So it was just wonderful yeah. for him to share that. But it was interesting because a lot of the stoic work that he does is at the level of, you know, writing books that. Yeah. Help the yeah. Rest I of mean, us. maybe that, that um, maybe that helps. It is yeah. like, it's funny, like what you avoid might not be so noticeable, you know, like I don't get entangled in dramatic things, you know, I don't, um, I don't feel anger hardly ever, you know? So it's like, mm. I think sometimes and especially when I was younger, you're kind of caught up in those things. So you need to get out of them, but maybe Mm -hmm. they're, you know, I don't, I have no idea if it has to do with age, but maybe if you're avoiding those um, entanglements, Mm -hmm. those, that kind of emotional chaos, you hardly Mm -hmm. notice maybe. (laughs) Well, that's interesting though, because I'm thinking um, as where I am now in life, my age experience, whatever I like emotional regulation and, and, you know, getting involved in, in weird entanglements or feeling weird about things. I don't feel that anymore. So that's why I feel like stoicism is much, maybe makes sense to me right now. So maybe it is a bit of age. Maybe it's yeah. Yeah. Um, Whereas As a teen who was high in um, living life, I felt that I had to experience it in full, like the highs and the lows. And and I think that comes from that kind of capital A art background and and all that sort of stuff. But, uh, yeah, that's quite interesting. Um, Before I I see you doing a lot of things as stoic too. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Yeah, doing a lot of things. Being brave and doing things when you're young. It's stoic because oh. you're not afraid. I mean, I think that's okay. kind of a stoic model. Like, what are you afraid of? Right. Why are you afraid afraid to do all this? Yeah. Oh, <laughs> oh thank you. The, you know, the, the partiers can be stoics. <laughs> oh, my God. I could keep you on for another two hours with that comment. That's interesting. Yeah, fair enough. <laughs> that's just made me rethink my entire life to date. Good. 
It hasn't been wasted. It's been stoic <laughs> to a certain extent. <laughs> All right. No, um, <laughs> before I let you go, I want to ask you a real quickie. Um, you'll be talking at the uh, Stoke on Next Women Conference and you're going to talk about um, raising children and caretaking. Caretaking, yes. I, I kind of had my um, husband's transplant journey in mind, but I'll blend, I'll blend the two. Oh, I find stoicism helpful for both of those things. Yeah. Well, feel free to focus on whichever story you prefer. Great. Well, yeah, there, yeah. there are overlaps. Yeah. There, there, yeah. yeah. There are That's caretaking good. groups that, yeah. and they, they use a lot of stoicism, even though they don't know it. You know, same, same thing with um, my friend who uh, was a protester in the civil rights era. You know, they don't realize they're stoics, but they are saying all the things. Yeah. <laughs> they're coping yes. the way you want them to. <laughs> <laughs> they don't realize they're stoics. I love that. All right. 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 Jennifer, they it's an absolute pleasure. <laughs> yeah, they thought, yeah, you. yeah. I'm strong and fearless. Yeah. Um yeah. Oh, thank you so much for this chat. It's thank my you. head really is buzzing. To- yeah. <laughs> I um do you want to say anything to the listeners? Like what's the thing that we you want us to know about? Where should we go and check you out? I Well, I wouldn't check me out as much as I have been recommending The Morality of Happiness by Julia Annis. It's 1993. It's very difficult. I don't think it's a read-alone book. You know, I, I obviously love a university class. Like, it helps to read it with other people and, and, and you know, maybe even with some instructors, maybe more than one. But um, I would really recommend people approach Stoicism from that book because it just gives you such a detailed um, map of the landscape that mm-hmm. uh, you would never go wrong after after getting through it, even if you get little tidbits here and there, or find a favorite author here or there, find a confusing passage. So it's really anchoring. It's really good. Well, That's what I'd recommend. That. All right. I haven't oh. read that, so I'm going to pop off. It's and, thick. Um, it's, make a I mean, it's, it's thick, is it? All right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right. <And> thanks <laughs> you for the couldn't even teach it. Not even in a semester. It'd be like a year-long course, so just be prepared. <laughs> wow. That sounds good. All right. Well, thank you so much. And um, if I don't see you before the conference, I'll see you then. Great. This was such a pleasure. It's so nice talking to you. Yeah. Everyone's and hopefully we can wanna, do it again. Yeah. Everyone's going to want to do your podcast. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank you so much. All right. And uh, see you soon. Okay. Thanks. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye.